Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. And topping the news today, two murders and a robbery in less than 24 hours. There was panic in Central City today after a gun battle Are you almost ready? Streets. Just about. Was killed and four it's getting pretty dark out there. After a law enforcement I don't think I've ever seen it get this dark before a storm. Wrong. The afternoon of carnage ended with one I just of want to get down to Sardis before the weather hits. Alright, I just gotta get my shoes on and we can go. What's that about? Severe thunderstorm warning, flash flood warning, and a tornado watch. <laughs> well, sounds like we're in for a party. We better go before the worst of it gets here. Did you see that lightning? Holy crap. Okay, I'm ready. Let's go. I got the umbrellas and the tickets. It's only a five-block walk, but I'm still nervous. getting ready. Well, I had a red shirt on when we left. Now I look like I took a bath in a batch of Merlot. I've never seen it rain that hard and that fast. We're drenched. Hopefully we dry out before the show. And hopefully they don't mind seeing a couple of wet cats in Sardis. Yes, we have a reservation for two, please. Thank you. It'll be fine. We'll have a nice dinner to dry out, and then we'll make a run for the Imperial Theater. It's only a block away. Sounds like a plan. And think of it this way. At the end of the day, we'll blend in with some part of the cast tonight. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the blockbuster show, Les Miserables. So, hurry and take your seats, it looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Today we are going to be bouncing around not only time but Broadway itself as we discuss the epic drama that is Les Miserables. That's right. Now Les Mis is one of those shows that has so many productions, tours, concerts, and it's just so huge that we could probably make a whole mini-series out of it. Mm -hmm. But for the purpose of a the purposes of today's episode, we are going to mainly discuss two specific productions. The original Broadway production in 1987 and the most recent revival in 2014. Okay, so we've laid the groundwork, so let's start setting up the foundation for these two shows. 
Let's begin our prologue. Les Mis is based on the novel of the same name by Victor Hugo. It was first released as a concept album and presented in 1980 in Paris, France. The idea to adapt Victor Hugo's novel into a musical came to mind when Alan Bublil was at a performance of the musical Oliver in London. In 1983, Cameron McIntosh received a copy of the concept album from Peter Farrago, who asked McIntosh to produce it in English. When he eventually agreed, he worked in conjunction with the Royal Shakespeare Company. The show opened in London on October 8, 1985, and due to its success, it moved a production to Broadway. Before we cross the ocean for New York, I want to mention a few more things about the original production in London. The original London production ran from October 1985 to July 2019, playing over 13,000 performances and making it the second longest running musical in the world after The Fantastics, the second longest running West End show after The Mousetrap, and the longest running musical in the West End. On October 3rd, 2010, the show celebrated its 25th anniversary with three productions running in London. The original production at the Queen's Theatre, the 25th anniversary touring production at the Barbican Centre, and the 25th anniversary concert at London's O2 Arena. So onward to the Great White Way. As Les Miserables was making its way to Broadway, an incredible team was being assembled to bring to the stage this huge production. The production design was by John Napier, costumes by Adrian Neofitu, lights by David Hersey, and sound design by Andrew Bruce. The music lyrics and book were by the well-known team of Claude Michel Schomburg and Alan Bubil. The show would be directed by John Caird and Trevor Nunn. And worth noting would be the show's producer, Cameron McIntosh. Before the show would arrive on Broadway, it opened as a pre-Broadway tryout at the Kennedy Center's Opera House and ran for eight weeks. From there, it was off to 53rd Street and Broadway, where the Broadway Theater sits. On March 12, 1987, Les Mis opened and it would remain here at the Broadway for over 16 years until its closing on May 18, 2003. During that time, it played 6,680 performances. As of 2019, it is the sixth longest-running show in Broadway history. The 1987 production would receive 12 Tony nominations. That evening, it wouldn't have to steal any of the eight awards it so dearly earned. <clears throat> they included Best Musical... Best Book of a Musical for Bubula and Schoenberg, as well as Best Original Score for the Duo, Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical for Michael McGuire, who played Andros, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Frances Raphael, who played Eponine, Best Direction of a Musical, Trevor Nunn and John Kiard, Caird, and Best Lighting Design, David Hersey, and Best Scenic Design, John Napier. So, that's the 1987 production. Now, as we mentioned, we are dealing with that production and the most recent revival, the 2014 production. So, just a few notes about that one. <clears throat> Before the most recent revival, 
Um, there was one other Broadway production done at the Broadhurst Theater between 2006 and 2008. This production is worth noting as it was the first revival of the show on Broadway and will be discussed in our personal experiences later. But back to the 2014 revival. <clears throat> the 2014 revival aired at the Imperial Theater on March 23rd in 2014. It would play for 1,024 shows until it closed on September 4th, 2016. The show had some familiar names in its design team, as well as some new ones. The set was by Matt Kinley, costume design again by Adrian Neofitu and Christine Rowland, lighting design by Paul Constable, and sound design by Mick Potter. Projections by 59 Productions, hair and wig design, Campbell Young Associates, and Luke Verscheren, director Lawrence Connor and James Powell. A familiar name worth mentioning involved in this production, again is its producer, Cameron McIntosh. The show would be nominated for four Tony Awards in 2014, but unfortunately not see the same success as the 1987 production. Okay, so that was a lot. But now that you've gotten your foundation set, Let's start to build the barricade that is Les Mis. So grab your baguette and let's dive in. In 1815 France, a group of prisoners are doing hard labor. We see prisoner guard Javert approach Jean Valjean, prisoner 24601, and release the prisoner on parole. Jean Valjean has been in prison for 19 years, five for stealing bread for his sister's starving family, and the rest for trying to escape. By law, Valjean must display a yellow ticket of leave to identify himself as an ex-convict, but... Being an ex-convict, he is shunned everywhere he goes and cannot find regular work, decent wages, or lodging. He finally meets the bishop of the town who offers him food and shelter. Being disparate, being desperate and bitter, Valjean steals the bishop's silver in the middle of the night. As he is fleeing, Valjean angers farmers and merchants who turn him in. He is, of course, captured by the police, who make him return the stolen objects to the bishop. The bishop, in an act of mercy and charity, lies to the police and tells them that the silver was a gift, and tells Valjean that in his haste he forgot the best of his gifts, a pair of silver candlesticks. The bishop tells Valjean that he must use the silver to become a honest man, and that he has bought Valjean's soul for God. Humbled by the bishop's kindness, Valjean resolves to redeem his sins. He tears up his yellow ticket, breaking his parole, but providing a chance for a new life, free from the stigma of his criminal past. Eight years later, in 1823, we see Valjean, who has assumed a new identity as Monsieur Madeleine, a wealthy factory owner and mayor of the town. We meet Fantine, who is a single mother working in his factory. She is trying to support her daughter, Cosette, who is being raised by an innkeeper and his wife, while Fantine labors in the city. 
unknown to Valjean, the factory foreman lusts after Fantine. She rejects his advances, which makes which he takes out on the other workers who resent her for this. One day, a co-worker steals a letter from Fantine's hands that is about her daughter Cosette. This worker reads the letter to the entire workforce and reveals that Fantine has a child, which is unfitting of a woman in her position. This starts a fight, and the other workers use it as a pretense to fire Fantine. Crushed, Fantine reflects on her broken dreams and of Cosette's father, who abandoned them. Desperate for money, she sells her locket, her hair, and when she has nothing left to sell, she sells her body by becoming a prostitute who attracts local sailors. When she fights back against an abusive customer, Javert, who is now a police inspector stationed in town, arrives to arrest her. Valjean happens to be passing by the scene and takes pity on Fantine. When he realizes she once worked for him and that she blames him for her misfortune, he is guilt-stricken. He demands Javert to release her and takes her to a hospital. Soon after, a man is pinned by a runaway cart and Valjean rescues him. Javert, who has up until now not recognized Valjean, uh, through, though he has pursued him as a fugitive after all these years. He witnesses the accident or the incident and becomes suspicious, remembering the incredible strength that Valjean showed. However, it turns out that a man who looks like Valjean has been arrested and is about to go on trial for breaking parole. The real Valjean realizes that this is a case of mistaken identity that could free him forever. But he is not willing to see an innocent man go to prison in his place. He confesses his identity to the court. At the hospital, a delirious Fantine dreams of Cosette. Valjean promises her that he will find Cosette and protect her. Relieved, Fantine succumbs to her illness and dies. After she passes, Javert arrives to take Valjean back into custody. But Valjean asks Javert for time to fetch Cosette. Javert refuses, insisting that a criminal like Valjean can never change. They struggle, but Valjean overpowers Javert and escapes. In the town where Cosette is staying, we see the duplicitous innkeepers, the Thenardiers, use Cosette as a servant and treat her cruelly while extorting money from Fantine, but claiming that Cosette is seriously ill and needing more money to feed. <clears throat> Sorry, to feed Cosette, all while indulging in their own daughter, Eponine. Cosette dreams of a life with her mother where she is not forced to work and is treated with love. Meanwhile, the Thenardiers cheat their customers, steal their possessions, and set high prices for low-quality services. Valjean meets Cosette here while, he is, uh, while she is on an errand drawing water from a well. He offers the Thenardiers payment to adopt her. The couple feigns concern for Cosette, claiming that they love her like a daughter and that she is in fragile health. They bargain with Valjean, who pays them about 1,500 francs in the end. Together, Cosette and Valjean head to Paris to start their new life. Nine years later, in 1832, Paris is in upheaval because of the impending death of General Lamarck, the only man in the government who shows mercy to the poor. Among those mingling in the streets are the student revolutionaries Marius and Andras, who contemplate the effect of Lamarck's death 
uh, who contemplate the effect that Lamarck's death will have on the poor and desperate in Paris. The Tenardiers, who have since lost their inn and now run a street gang, including Eponine, who has now grown and has fallen in love with her best friend Marius, who is oblivious to this. Also there in their gang is a street urchin named Gavroche, who is being raised as the only son of the Tenardiers, who knows everything that happens in the slums. The Tenardiers prepare to con some charitable visitors, who happen to be Valjean and Cosette, whom have grown into a beautiful young woman. While the gang bamboozles her father, Cosette runs into Marius, and the pair fall in love at first sight. Tenardier suddenly recognizes Valjean, but before he can finish the robbery, Javert, now an inspector in France, comes to the rescue, and Valjean and Cosette escape before being seen, and only later, after the Tenardiers tip him off, does Javert suspect who they were. He makes a vow right then and there under the stars to find Valjean and bring him to justice. All while Marius persuades Eponine to help him find Cosette. At a small cafe, Andros exhorts a small group of idealistic students to prepare for revolution. Marius interrupts the serious atmosphere by fantasizing about his newfound love, much to the amusement of his compatriots. When Gavroche brings the news of General Lamarck's death, the students realize that they can use the public's dismay to incite their revolution, and that their time has come. At Valjean's house, Cosette thinks about her chance meeting with Marius. She confronts Valjean about the secrets he keeps about his and her own past. Eponine leads Marius to Cosette's garden. He and Cosette meet again and confess their mutual love, while a heartbroken Eponine watches them through the garden gate and laments that Marius has fallen in love with another. Tenardier and his gang arrive, intending to rob Valjean's house, but Eponine stops them by screaming a warning. The scream alerts Valjean, who believes that intruder was Javert. He tells Cosette they must go on the run again and starts planning for them to leave France altogether. On the eve of the 1832 Paris uprising, Valjean prepares to go into exile. Cosette and Marius part in despair. Angeras encourages all of Paris to join the revolution while the other students prepare for battle. Eponine acknowledges despairingly that Marius will never love her. Marius is conflicted whether to follow Cosette or join the uprising. Javert reveals his plans to spy on the students and the Tenardier's scheme to profit off the coming violence. Marius decides to stand with his friends and all anticipate what the dawn will bring. End of Act 1. Act 2 starts as the students are building a barricade to serve as their rally point. Javert arrives disguised as a rebel volunteer to spy on government troops. Marius discovers that Eponine has disguised herself as a boy to join the rebels. Wanting to keep his best friend safe from the impending violence, he sends her to deliver a farewell letter to Cosette. Valjean intercepts the letter and learns about Marius and Cosette's romance. Hurt, Eponine walks the streets of Paris alone, imagining that Marius is, is there, but laments that her love for Marius will never be reciprocated. 
The French army arrives at the barricade and demands that the students surrender. Javert returns from his spying and tells the students that the government will not attack that night. But Gavroche recognizes him and exposes him as a spy for the government, and the students detain him. Their plan is to spark a general uprising with their act of defiance, hoping that all of the people of France will side with them and overwhelm the army. Eponine returns to find Marius, but is shot by the soldiers crossing the barricade. As Marius holds her, she assures him that she feels no pain and reveals her love for him before dying in his arms. The students mourn this, the first life lost at the barricades, and resolve to fight in her name. Angeras attempts to confront, or sorry, comfort Marius, who is devastated and heartbroken over the death of his best friend. Valjean arrives at the barricade, crossing the government lines, disguised as a soldier, hoping he might uh, be someone who could protect Marius in the coming battle for Cosette's sake. The rebellious students are suspicious of him at first, but when the army attacks, Valjean saves Angeros by shooting at a sniper, scaring him off. They accept him as one of them. In return, he asks Angeros to allow him to be the one to execute the imprisoned Javert, which Angeros grants. But as soon as Valjean and Javert are alone, Valjean frees Javert. Javert warns Valjean that he will not give up his pursuit and rejects what he perceives as a bargain for Valjean's freedom. Valjean says there are no conditions for his release and holds no grudges toward Javert for doing his duty. The students settle down for the night and reminisce about the past while also expressing anxiety about the battle to come. Andras tells the other students to stay awake in case the enemy strikes unexpectedly in the night. But he tells Marius to get some sleep knowing Marius is still devastated over losing Eponine. To stay awake, Grantier gets angry and asks the students if they fear to die. Marius wonders if Cosette will remember him if he too should perish. As Marius sleeps, Valjean prays to God to protect the young man, even if the cost for Marius's safety is his own life. As dawn approaches, Andras realizes that the people have not risen up with them, but resolves to fight in spite of the impossible odds. The resolve is fired up even further when the army kills young Gavroche, who snuck out to collect ammunition from the bodies on the other side of the barricade. The army gives a final warning, but the rebels fight to the last man with Andras exclaiming, let the others rise to take our place until the earth is free. Everyone at the barricade is killed except Valjean and a greatly wounded Marius who escape into the sewers. Javert returns to the barricade searching for Valjean amongst the bodies and finds an open sewer grate. Valjean carries Marius through the sewers but collapses in exhaustion. While he is unconscious... Thenardier, who has been looting bodies, comes upon them and takes a ring from the unconscious Marius, but flees when Valjean, whom he again recognizes, regains consciousness and 
is not in fact dead. When Valjean carries Marius to the sewer's exit, he finds Javert waiting for him. Valjean begs Javert for one hour of time so he can bring Marius to a doctor. Javert reluctantly agrees. Javert finds himself unable to reconcile Valjean's merciful acts with his perception of Valjean being an irredeemable criminal. Refusing to compromise his principles, but no longer able to hold them sacred, he finds himself torn between his beliefs about God and his desire to adhere to the law. He is unable to reconcile and commit suicide by throwing himself into the river below. In the wake of the failed revolution, women mourn the deaths of the students. Marius, wounded but alive, despairs at the death of his friends and sees that their sacrifice was for nothing. As he confers who had saved his own life, Cosette comforts him and they reaffirm their feelings for one another. Valjean realizes that Cosette will not need him as a caretaker once she's married and gives them his blessing. Valjean also confesses to Marius that he is an escaped convict and must go away because his presence endangers Cosette. He makes Marius promise to never tell Cosette his secret. A few months later, Marius and Cosette marry. The Thenardiers crash the reception disguised as nobility and attempt to blackmail Marius, telling him that Valjean is a murderer and that Thenardier saw him carrying a corpse in the sewers after the barricades fell. When Thenardier shows him the ring he stole as proof, Marius realizes that it was Valjean who saved his life. The newlyweds leave to find Valjean. The Thenardiers are not discouraged. Instead, they gloat that their craven practicality has saved their lives time and time again. At a convent, Valjean awaits his death, having nothing left to live for. The spirit of Fantine appears to him and tells him that he has been forgiven and will soon be with God. Cosette and Marius arrive to find Valjean on his deathbed. Valjean thanks God for letting him live long enough to see Cosette again, and Marius thanks him for saving his life. Valjean gives Cosette a letter confessing his troubled past and the truth about her mother. As he dies, the spirits of Fontaine and Eponine guide him to, a, to heaven, reminding him that to love another person is to see the face of God. They are joined by the spirits of those who died at the barricades, who sing that in the next world, God lays low all tyranny and frees all oppressed people from their shackles. The, the end. end. So now we're going to discuss the parts of the show we like, we don't like. And somewhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot. That, I mean, like I said, this this could be part of a, a, a mini-series. But we made it this far. You've, you've hung in there. So, let's start with the plot. It is the ultimate David and Goliath story. You know what I mean? It is. It's a little. It's a little guy 
versus the big guy the entire time. See, I wouldn't say that it's a David and Goliath story necessarily because I don't think that the little guy wins. I disagree entirely. I think, I totally think the little guy wins. I think the undermined, the underrepresented, the oppressed totally comes out on top. And that is Jean Valjean. You, he's, he's got everything against him the entire time and he comes out on top. He redeems himself. He does so much good. And the people that he does good for also come out on top. I don't and know everybody is better for it. But see, I think that this show has too many varying degrees of morals to be able to be summed up in a David and Goliath story. I think there's it, this show, the, the, the way that it's written, the plot, there's so many moral gray areas that I just don't feel like well, I guess you I can sum it up that Jean way. Well, I guess I would say between Jean Valjean and Javert has David and Goliath, with the two central characters. Jean Valjean overcomes Javert. And Javert is the oppressor most of the show. Yes, but I also think that, you know, I mean, I am no way coming to defense of Javert, but, like, he's just doing his job. Yeah, that's not a good excuse in any... Oh, I know. In any form Police of brutality is never okay. I mean, I'd have a lot more family if people just didn't do their job, you know. Yes. But my the point being is Jean Valjean, all he had was kindness and good deeds that's all he was armed with and Javert had the weight of the law so to me that's the David and Goliath story okay I can see that but I just feel like there's just so many different levels of I mean to sum up Victor Hugo's novel Les Mis into just a David and no, Goliath story I, I just think that that's that's misinterpreting what Victor I, Hugo's point was I would say Javert and Jean Valjean would be the uh, the example of the David and Goliath yes um, I wouldn't say it's a perfect balance of comedy and tragedy but I also would at the same time it has a perfect balance of comedy and tragedy I'm not going to say it's 50-50 but what's no. nice is that there's enough comedy that it allows the tragedy to exist and to be heavy when it needs to be. But it's not a complete downer where you're like, I just, I'm weeping for three hours. So that's, that's where I'm coming from with, you know, I think I, I, I always, I mean, obviously you need comedy to balance out tragedy. Right. You know? Well, and I think that the fact that, you know, Victor Hugo, who wrote the original source material was a Senator. Um, he was highly involved with politics um, and so his, you know, Les Mis was a, like, a magnifying glass or a um, an examination of the nature of... Like a social of, commentary. Yeah, on law yeah. and grace, like how the laws of... The laws of our morals are different than the laws of man. Yes. You know, yeah. and so how Very those... holding up a mirror to society and being like, you may believe in one thing, but look how it's affecting... Right, because other. you're not practicing what you're saying you believe right. in. You say that you believe in charity, but look at how many people are suffering. Right. You look at, you know, how people need to be moral, but then they're starving, and then we you're send maybe, them to prison for stealing bread because they're starving. You claim to be these highfalutin Christians, and what Christian values are you imposing? You know. Yes. Well, because I feel like it, a lot of people can get caught up on the fact that, like, oh, yeah, it's these, you know, kids trying to overturn the government, and they're really like, no... Look at how bad things are because of your a government. They're giving voice to the voiceless. Yeah, they're giving a voice to the voiceless. But, you know, I think, you know, honestly, I think a lot of this could draw 
similar con- not similar conclusions, but I know similar where you're going with lines this. to the Black Lives Matter yeah, movement. Save it, save it for later. Okay. Um, it's uh, we keep saying it. it's a, it's a it's a true redemption story. It's a story of a changed man. You know. Um, well, it's it, a, it, when, when the show starts. You've got Javert and Valjean, and I mean clearly, you know what side everyone's on. We we clearly know like Valjean's probably a good guy. I mean, get the essence. I mean, just the way they look and act. That Javert is probably not the greatest of guys. But given the information we have, we have the officer and we have a criminal. We learn that this criminal later on, I mean, he turns his life around for the better. And he ends up being the more, in my opinion, he has the better character and he's the better person than the officer. Well, and I think that he always was. Yeah, because no, the only fair. reason why he was even a criminal to begin with was because he was stealing bread for his sister's well, starving children. That was the good thing. Escaping prison was the bad thing. Well, yeah, but how how you know how long would you be complacent, being no, punished with hard labor? That's you know, and borderline right. torture. That's absolutely right. Over Five trying years to for do something good. Bread. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's this is a story about breaking rules. Well, and what rules should be broken? Yeah, you know, obviously anarchy is not the answer to everything, but it's challenging things and examining things and saying once in a while you have to break the rules in order to reinvent or to change things. You know, and I think that's an important thing. And um, we're going to discuss later on how that might influence certain things. But, you know, certainly within the context of the shows, you know, um, the show doesn't exist in, w- in one year. It exists over a course of time. And you see, you know, society and these characters just start to question things and really they, they break social norms. They break laws. They break, you know, I mean, Ebony dresses like a boy to fight on the front lines. We have a child get killed. I mean, we're right. breaking all sorts of rules. Right. Well, and also I think the show also, like plays into the fact that Within these larger topics, they are just normal people living their lives. Right. Yeah. That, that's a really good point. Let's move on to the set. Um, look, whether you've seen the show or not, I'm sure I we all can agree. It's, it's an iconic set. <clears throat> Particularly the barricade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, let's be real. This has got to be one of the coolest things you've ever seen. Um, I mean, in both productions, seeing the barricade come together, and they they came together in different ways in both productions. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing it, this massive three story thing just come together on stage, it was incredible. You know, it and the original production it like folded down from the sides and floated in, and the revival, you know, again it folded and it swung around and it compiled itself together, and I was like, oh my god, that you know. This is, and, and it did. It looked like a bunch of heaping garbage coming together. Cause, and, and you did have actors placing things into the set as well. Yes. Because, you know, of course, you couldn't, with, with how much stuff was going to happen on this set piece, you couldn't just have them, we're going to build a set piece. You know, no, that couldn't, that couldn't happen. Um, the other notable, really kind of um, iconic thing with the set was, um, which they didn't have in the revival, which was a bummer, but... Uh, Oh, the rotating stage. The turntable. Yeah, the revolving. Yeah. Well, because that's one of my favorite things about having the turntable and then um, having the song turning, turning, turning. turning. Yeah, and it's like, you know, the set's revolving. We're revolving. 
everything keeps rolling. I like, mean, one day more, it adds to it. And then, of course, do you hear the people sing, watching the march on this turntable? That's, I mean, it's... I, and look, the revival was great and all, but that was just the one thing that when it didn't happen, I was like, huh. It was, oh, well, and they were right. the first to to do it that way. And so. Well, because they used projections. And that was kind of cool that that the, the background, the psych, what they were doing is as they were marching, the psych was, the projection was showing that they were like moving through the city. And I was like, okay, oh, that's yeah. kind of cool. That was cool. But I mean, the whole idea of the turntable oh, yeah. and the lame is March, like that in and of itself was theater history. That, so then to try to reinvent your own history was a really interesting take for that revival. Right. Right. Um, and then of course, um, you know, we all, the other thing that I think is iconic and it comes from that moment is the red flag, the giant red flag. I mean, you, you just think of one day more, and it's one day more, when they're every... Here's the thing, and, I, and I'm going to own up to this. I'm sure there's other people out there. Everyone thinks, do you hear the people sing as a song that they're all marching, and the flag is waving, and I'm like, no, 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 no. It's it's one day more. It's the end of Act 1, and they're all, tomorrow is another day. And then one more dawn, the giant flag comes out. It's waving in the mm-hmm. back. And you're like, yeah, I don't and know who we're going to fight at an intermission, but I'm, I'm going to people it. at the bar. Yeah. Well, and it's that same um, flag that it, yeah, it's it comes back when uh, Angeros dies. You That's know? the flag. And, yeah. He's waving it on the top of the uh, barricade, and he's shot, and he falls back um, behind the barricade, and um, at the end of the scene, after everyone's dead and they revolve the barricade to reveal behind it, um, you see Angeros. Now, hold on a second. In the original production, I believe, and I'm, I'm, I might be misspe- misspeaking here. In the original production, I know you see Angeros laying on the barricade and he's clutching the flag. Mm-hmm. Like it's draped across and he's clutching it. I think I remember in the revival... They care. They carted him on, like that. I don't think they rotated the barricade in the revival so that we could see him. Yeah. I can't don't, quite. I remember. can't remember right now. I'm but... having a senior moment, but I do remember in the original production. You know, he fell back, and then when they revolved the barricade, you just see him splayed out, and this flag is, and he's gripping it. He's not gripping his gun. He's gripping the the flag. Yeah, because it's symbolic such... of his of the idea is stronger than the yep. man. And I think that's so powerful. The whole set just gives you that feeling of just dirty. Well, the whole not time. even like not like you know west uh, western desert like sandstorm dirty. We're talking like, like that grimy, grimy living in like the like beat. Not beach, but like near um, water, like mildewy. Yeah, like you just really feel just wet the whole time yes it's like that dirty icky slimy dirty not necessarily and soot sooty and to to have a set that makes you feel that yes is brilliant to me the lighting okay so we talked a lot about lighting about shows (coughs) excuse me um but there's a few interesting moments with lighting uh in this show you know um obviously there's great use of shadows I think that's really important. And it's also really hard when you're doing a live stage show because shadows can really be your enemy. 
you know, you've got to be able to see actors and their faces and expressions. But this show is a show that, like, you need shadows. Mm-hmm. You need that effect. It really helps communicate a that that emotion, that bit larger than life emotion, even more. Um, but I love. Um, well, I'm just going to jump to the end of the show. The moment when the spirits start to come out to guide Vajan to heaven, they are perfectly lit. Like illuminated. And it's not like they're like lit in white light to look no, like No, they look white. like illuminated. Well, they, And they look like spirits, like clear, like iridescent spirits. Mm-hmm. Like very, almost like smoky. And it's this beautiful, like, it's ghostly, obviously. And it's just like, oh my God, this is perfect. And even when they come up to Valjean... To touch him, they still have that color. And then, obviously, as Valjean slips away to die, he takes on that color. And I was like, this is incredible. Well, and I think I remember it the most from things I've seen from the original production, Mm -hmm. more so than the revival. Yeah. And then I love, I, I still recall to this day just getting chills, you know, to love another person is to see the face of God. And the three of them are sitting there. And then you just hear that, do you hear the people sing? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is before you see them, you hear them. And then the lights slowly come up in the back. And you see essentially the rest of the cast except for the Tenardiers. Mm-hmm. And they're in that white light. And it's almost like that red kind of spot. Mm-hmm. And Where it you just, can just you feel like you're going into heaven. Well, but they're yeah, but they're lined up in the back with these special spots, and it's just like, I, it's such a it's a powerful staging moment, and it's a powerful lighting moment, mm-hmm. and it really has a profound effect. You know, um, the lighting effects to uh, simulate Javert's suicide is another really great moment. Um, now, the revival when they did it, they used projections to show him falling. And again, the projections were interesting and a different choice. And I think that really helped bring Les Mis into um, the now. Well, especially since we had the newest movie that was out. I, yeah, I when... think the audience kind of expected a little bit higher thing. But in the original production, he I remember him being up on a bridge and he jumps and he's obviously... Um, Suspended in a... Uh, he's, he's on a fly system. Yeah. And he's, so he's lowered slowly, but the way the lights are doing it, and it's kind of like he's in slow motion, the way the lights cast it on him, you get the sense that he's falling, and it's it's absolutely beautiful. And it's it's one of those, like Julie Tamor says, you don't have to feed all the answers to the audience. They know they're coming to the theater. So I don't need to see him plummet in real time. I got it. He's committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Um... I, again, going back to One Day More, not only is that red flag such a powerful image, but the next time you see, if they do a, if you ever get to see a Les Mis production and they kind of do it, they stay true to the original production. <clears throat> at the end of One Day More, they, it's, it's not a blackout at the very end. There is a brief moment, okay? So there should be smoke filling the stage, right? And they do the Les Mis march. And they hit that one day morning, and they hit the button. The lights kind of go dimmer on the stage, but right above them is the French flag. Oh, yeah, in the smoke, in the lights. But only at the top is the cool thing. Now, if anyone out there is a lighting expert, please explain this to me, because this was the coolest thing to see is... 
the top of the stage had the French flag. The bottom didn't, but like, it was almost like there was this black circle on the stage around the cast, right? And then, you know, the bottom of the stage was dark, but the top around the black circle, there's the French flag. And I was like, this is the coolest effect ever. And I'm sure it's something simple, but it was there. Uh, and the last thing I want to mention about lights, um, when they did gunshots, particularly again in the original, they use lights, they use special lights, you know, a shot would be fired, you see the light kind of do that. And you want to talk kinda about Kind of like a... hit in spots, sorry, yeah, yeah, only yeah. I can see the motion you're Oh, doing. I'm sorry, yeah, so, so <laughs> you'd, you'd have the stage, you'd have the stage and you'd hear the gunshot and there'd be like a little spot that would hit the barricade, like a small spot of light. And you want to talk about a powerful moment. You've got little Gavroche. They're all behind the barricade and they're all looking. And you hear Gavroche singing, because little people done. And and they're like, Gavroche, get over here. And then you see one of the spots hit him. And you can hear the air just get sucked out of the theater. I don't think it would be as effective if you just heard the gunshot because you've already heard so many gunshots. But to see that light hit him. Mm-hmm. and hit him again and then hit him a third time and you're just like little buddy oh my mom cries every time obviously but it's just oh um yeah, yeah. it's oh well and you know just speaking of like gunshots and all that stuff i am always thoroughly impressed with how the sound plays with this like the moving sounds of yeah, cannon fire and gunfire. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like it's coming from a place or it's coming towards you. And I've never not felt like gunfire was going everywhere. It's when not I've seen just like coming at you in one direction. It's very directional, which mm-hmm. is great. I have a fun fact about sound that I, I recently learned and there's a great video you can see. So there's, you know, there's a soldier that's uh, typically I believe it's a recording. You know, you at the barricade, listen to this. The people of Paris sleep in the bed, right? Well, when the recent revival, one night, Lin-Manuel Miranda came by and he did the voice for that. He did it live on the spot in the middle of the show. Um, there's a great video out there. You, If you just type in Lin-Manuel Miranda, sings at Les Mis, I'm sure you can find that. But I was like, how cool would that if you're just sitting there enjoying Les Mis and then you hear... Alexander Hamilton just sitting there and it's like apparently Hamilton's fighting for the French you know I mean he had to go and you know he had to help Lafayette it's fine. even though this is before no this is after our revolution yeah okay mm-hmm. fair yeah um but yeah so I, I thought that was kind of cool and I wonder if anybody else happened to do that that'd be interesting um moving on moving on Costumes. We got to talk about the costumes. Uh, I mean, listen. It's Les Mis. It's you I know mean, Les Mis, right? This, the thing I love about Les Mis is the way that they play texture into the costumes. Go on. Because, I mean, you can only play with so much as far as color goes because you have to be able to establish like different classes of people because mm-hmm. of this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that desi- the designer plays with the textures that you see, you d- see different like wools and different like shawls and tattered and dirty and dingy, but also like the way that everyone, you know, I mean, 
they're working people, so there's functionality in it too. But then to have on um, in Act Two where everything's a little bit more clean. Um, I mean, well, for the for the richer people, yeah, for the richer people. I was like, I don't know, the poor I mean, get dirtier, in my opinion. Oh, the poor get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. You, but then, you definitely but then, see that split. You see where the social there is a clear difference yeah. every time aristocracy or nobility is played off especially i mean and that's why it's the scene of marius and cosette's wedding is always one of my favorites just because it's one of the few times where the entire stage is clean and pretty powdered wigs giant dresses with all these bows right well and i do like what I love about that particular scene is some productions do it with powdered wigs, some don't, because we're in a weird time period during this where we're seeing, um, you know, a shift. We're seeing a shift in yes. what we're seeing. And so I always love how costume designers play that history into it. But it has to look clean and neat and tidy. It's mm-hmm. the one moment. Actually, I would argue that there's only one other moment I feel like that has to look clean and neat and tidy. And that's the finale. Oh, see, I, I thought you were going to say when uh, uh, Valjean goes to court. No. No, 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 no. confesses. No. no, I don't think that has to look clean, neat, and tidy because Jean Valjean has just lifted a cart. So he's going to be sweating and huffing and puffing and he might be a little dirty. Plus, he's the mayor. He doesn't... He's the mayor of a small working town. He's not going to necessarily look like the mayor of France. And there's a guy in there who is a poor working guy. Like, That's fair, yeah. I mean, everyone on the stage looks clean and neat and nice. And not necessarily rich. I think the end of the show, everyone looks clean and, you know. Well, I think it's, it's they don't look necessarily clean. It's they look pure. It looks like they've been washed of their sins. I also love the color palettes that are used to represent each character. I And see, when we were putting this script together and we were, you know, Look, it takes us like a week to put these together. And we have to sit there and really... Some of these shows, we have to reach way back and remember things. And I was thinking about this and I went, you know, in every production I've seen, there is a certain palette that I've seen with each character. For instance, Andros is always seen with red and white. Get that white shirt with that red vest. Um, Gavroche, he's always in like a black or a dark gray or like a navy blue, like something. Darker colors. Uh, Eponine, always in like dark gray or a dark brown. Um, she's never in a bright color. She's, she's not. What? And when I say Eponine, I mean like Eponine of uh, 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 older Eponine. When yeah. she's poor and dirty and all that. Well, yeah, because people who are poor wouldn't have bright colored clothing. Cosette. Now, this is one that I, I really thought of. Always in light colors. Always. Mm-hmm. Even when she's a little girl. Always in light colors. Well, because she signifies purity. Wow. The Tenardiers, almost always in some form of a light color, light blue or light gray. And what I love about that is they are the light-hearted part of the show. Yes, but I would argue to say they're the worst characters in the show. They might be the worst characters in the show, but it's very much like the Smee of Peter Pan. Smee is a terrible character, but you laugh. Yeah. They're, they're the comic relief. They're the fools of the show. But while, you know, as, as Don McClellan said, the gesture sold the king's crown in American Pie, you know. Yeah. The fools usually come in and take the power, and that's fine. 
Javert, always in Navy. Well, that's because he's a soldier. But he's, he's a all, but man he's of the law. In, yeah, and then Jean Valjean is almost always in the colors of the French flag. Once he escapes his parole, think about his costumes. There's always an element of red, white, and blue somewhere in his costume. Okay. I'll have to believe you. It's not ringing a bell in my mind, but I'll believe you. Somewhere you can find an element of red, white, and blue. It may not be obvious, but somewhere. I had to think about this. And from the pictures that I could find, I was like, interesting. And and the exceptions to the rule, like I said, are the beginning and the end. Um, the beginning where he's... Oh, and this is also interesting. The beginning of the show, he's in gray like or brown, like really just disgusting... You know, like pantaloon-esque, like prisoner garb. You love that word, esque. Pantaloon-esque. <laughs> um, but at the end, he's also kind of like in simple... I mean, he's at a, a convent, so he's not mm. dressed to the nines anymore with coats. Yeah. You want to know why? Because okay. we're all born naked and the rest is drag. Settle down. <laughs> Moving on to wigs and makeup while we're at it real quick. I mean, this well, <laughs> show, if you were a wig and makeup person, say it with me. Dirt. 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 There's just, yeah, the show is always just how do we make people look dirty? How do we make people look dirty? Yeah. Um, Though one of my favorites is there is a specific bloody whore in the pretty ladies scene. Um, It's because she's, you know, she's she's got the the thing that I think it's TB, but I don't know. The coughing where you cough blood? I think so, or some sort of disease. I don't know. She's bleeding because she's dying. She's. Okay. I mean, it depends where you're bleeding from. If you're her bleeding, mouth, yeah, usually so she's got herpes and herpes, because she gross. Uh, okay. But she's specifically. I, I'm not a doctor. Well, I work in the theater. Anyway, I'll say I'm she's my lane. oh, she's that's her character is called the bloody whore. Okay. Like the, it's cast as the bloody whore. Um. So I just think that that's really interesting. Um. I also love. Um. You know, this is one of those shows that. Uh, the journey that you get to help take the characters on, especially uh, Valjean and Javert, because they start the show at one age and end the show at another. But they're, well, Valjean is always on stage, so how do you progressively age him? One day we're going to do a special side podcast, start, you know, side episode about the people backstage and what they do. And how they do it. Because the tales that we have, I mean, I run There are a, some crazy things you do for theater I've art. I run a show that I had, a, I got to change an actor in 30 seconds. And that's the only time they got to come off stage in the entire first act. And that was it. Yeah. Besides that, it was like a hand reaching behind a bookcase. But anyway. Yeah. So, you know, you, you had to, the things you've had to, that these guys have to do in order to show the, to keep up with the progression of time. Because obviously there are probably a projection or something showing that we have moved 10, 15 years later, nine years later, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the music, it's one of the most iconic scores ever. You, oh, yeah. I mean, you can't not turn anything in your life to something lame as. Oh, I mean, when we would see the show, um, we I, I think that was like the game one summer was, how do we turn take look in. down, look down into, you know, we're off, we're off to go and see a show. You know, like that I mean, was just... you can turn any conversation and to the tune of any song in the yeah. mess. But you just hear that opening 
thing. Boom, boom, dun, dun. And you're like, yep, I know what it is. Lame is. Uh-huh. Or my favorite part of Lame is, um, honestly, as far as the music goes, is the French horn. Broom, broom, broom. Oh my gosh, yes. And you the know battle. what I mean? Yeah, the French, the, the French, French horn. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. I never really ever thought about a French horn until I knew of Les Mis, and I like you hear that sound, and you're like, oh, that's a French horn. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know but, what I mean? But it's just it's a beautiful little bit, but it's so triumphant, and you're like, yes. No, not only is the show also a musical, but it's almost like a true operetta because pretty much the entire show is sung. Mm-hmm. There's, I really can't think of any real lines of dialogue. It's all. It's one of those shows that's very similar. Like, uh, I made the comment once, if you listen to the album of Hamilton, you've basically listened to the entirety of the show with a few I mean, exceptions. Or Rent. Or Rent. You know, there's many shows out there like that. This is one of them. You can listen to the entire recording of Les Mis, and that's the entire show. There's a few caveats here and there, obviously. But, yeah, it well, doesn't beat seeing it on stage, but, you know. Yeah, or one of the other things that I absolutely love that I want to mention with the music is even just, like, the underscoring of moments. Um, like, the way that this, like, very delicate um, discovery music is played when uh, Javert is looking for Valjean's body at the barricade and then he discovers the sewer gate being open. Mm-hmm. You can just hear the sewer. You can see in your head sewer gate being open, but then there's this beautiful, delicate it's discovery. It's almost cinematic. Yeah, and it's yes. like discovery music. And like when you hear it, you can just imagine Javert walking across the stage and discovering a gate that is left open. <laughs> Sorry, you can't see my hand motions. I know, but, that was the motion. But it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it just the music... <laughs> Pure and simple. Iconic. Last thing is the direction. And I think we don't need to just have an hour-long discussion about it, but it's brilliant. You know, it's simple yet complex. Each movement is precise and it's necessary. There isn't much movement needed, really, in the show. Like, it's not a huge dance show by any means. No, but every movement has a purpose. This is kind of one of those, like lessons in theatrical movement like this what is, is my purpose of moving to the power of stillness yes you know uh and, and when i was in college that was the biggest thing that we learned is you don't have to move every time you say something or do something you can it's make like a statement you, by holding still and there's a lot of that here but it's so powerful you know um and it's it's one of the first shows i love this quote from uh, Broadway, the American musical from the theater critic. This is one of the first shows where we started applauding the poor sons of bitches trying to keep up with the turntable. We already mentioned it, but, you know, this has got iconic directing mo- moves like the Les Mis March. It's called the Les Mis March. It's not, oh, we're just marching. No, it has a name to it. It's called the Les Mis March, mm-hmm. you know, and it's that that's the name of it. So a few fun facts about the show now. Um Obviously, we've mentioned it, but a film adaptation of the musical was done by Tom Hooper, and that was released in 2012. Also, it's worth noting that this was the second production on Broadway that brought together the hit team of Trevor Nunn, who directed, and Cameron McIntosh, who produced. Also, um, some notable cast members include Sutton Foster, um, who this was back when she was still being cast in the ensemble. Um, and, of course, understudy for Eponine. Hunter Foster, her That's brother. Right. Yep. Um, Daisy Egan, 
Uh, the youngest Tony Award winner ever, fun fact. Colm uh, uh, Wilkinson for Jean Valjean, um, who had turned down the title role in Phantom of the Opera to play Valjean. Michael Ball, who played Marius, Jean Valjean, and Javert. Norm Lewis, who played Javert. Gary Beach, who played Tenardier. Leah Salong, who played Fantine. Judy Kuhn, uh, who played Cosette and Fantine. And Terrence Mann, who played Javert. Let's now talk about the impact the show has had on theater and its history. Because we haven't talked about it enough. I mean... Look, <laughs> it's Les Mis! Everyone knows Les Mis. Like... There, we're done. Moving yeah. on. No, I'm kidding. No, it's, it's Les Mis. It is like... It's a blockbuster. When you write out the timeline of musical theater and you have to put like little notches for certain shows... There's a giant honking one where Les Mis comes to play. And other ones are like Phantom of the Opera. And, you know, Wicked. Hair, Red, Wicked. You know, Les Mis has got this honking one. And it's like, what year did it come? 1980? No. You know. Another one is, it's one of the Macintosh mega musicals. I love that term. Just so you know. Mm-hmm. That just well, sits in your because, mouth so well. I mean, at least in recent history... I can't think of, like, a producer that is known that well on Broadway for their iconic style. Well, I mean... In my mind. Uh, he had his own if, 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 style. When, when, we have, when we have time off, I'm going to give you a few names and you're going to go, oh. One of which is a guy who, um, let's just say he's not fond in the producing world anymore thanks to the Me Too movement. Uh, yeah, and there's another guy who's removed it, himself from several shows. There's a lot of producers who've had their thumb in the pie, but the thing that makes Cameron McIntosh great is he brought an entire movement that ushered the Broadway musical into the direction of the mega musical. He brought the British invasion. And what came... Usually, usually, I would say, Broadway influences where theater's kind of going... We, I mean, I'm not saying that's always the way, but you know, we invented the musical theater. We invented the musical. And typically, up until I'd say the 80s, we were the ones that were like, this is the direction musicals are going. And in the 80s, with Cameron McIntosh and people like Andrew Lloyd Webber and Boobel and Schoenberg, all of a sudden bringing over the stuff from, from the West End, it was like, okay, so you've been doing this stuff, but have you seen what a mega musical could be? Have you seen. It, we could land a helicopter on the stage like in Miss Saigon, or we could build a giant, huge barricade like in Les Mis, or crash a chandelier. And now, with audiences today, we're just kind of like, yeah, that's the norm. Man, back in the 80s, this was like, wait, what? The coolest thing we've seen is the cast coming out in the audience or a kick line. Like, that was it, you know? So... I think the brilliance of Cameron McIntosh is being able to see a show that's going to reinvent the theater. And I, his latest uh, endeavor, I bet you didn't know this, 
What is the biggest musical in the world right now? Hamilton. Produced by Cameron Mackintosh. Mm. So I, I think uh, that I think that's what makes his influence. You know what's funny is as you were talking, all I could think of is yeah, Cameron Mackintosh brought theatrics to the stage, and I was like, wait a second, he took theatrics and reinvented theatrics. Yeah, he he just <laughs> he amped it up, and you know I. It'd be interesting to see which person takes that next. And I just love that theater's always about one-upping. And sometimes it's about getting smaller, but you know, it's... Well, because sometimes the best way you can outdo someone is by going smaller. I'm excited to see what happens next as Broadway reopens. Like, okay, what are we going to do now? Um, it's, this show solidified Bublil and Schoenberg in the tomes of musical theater. It introduced them to the world as well. You know, later on they would go on to create and bring to us Miss Saigon and the Pirate Queen and... Yeah, the Pirate Queen was a flop on Broadway. Um, it's been a little bit more successful off Broadway, but Miss Saigon is another iconic show. We'll get to that another time. But you know, we—I can't believe the amount of success these two have seen. And then you hear they've only basically written three Broadway shows. Well, Les Mis, I think, counts for fifty shows. Then you know. Oops. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Les Mis on its own is just. Heavy. And then, like I said, this this show ushered in the epic musical. You know, um, I believe if memory serves, right? Cats had already come. Phantom was not here yet. Um, so, you know, we'd have big musicals. But this show, this show at three and a half hours, this is an epic show the size of the cast, the sets, just the e- length and the heaviness of the source material. I mean, the and- size of the orchestra. I mean, this is an epic show. And 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 if you think about the shows before Les Mis, you just this wasn't it, you know. Um, and it's a modern operetta. Like I said, it's a modern operetta. And and it doesn't sound like necessarily, you know, in the sense of modern like rock guitar, it's not rent, but when it's written, technically modern, you know. Right. Well, because it still has that like modern musical theater sound to it, while still being operatic and in nature of the way that the story unfolds. The singers who sing the show, I, I would, I will bet all the money in my wallet against all the money in your wallet. If you were casting Lee Miz, I bet you have some sort of classical training. Especially if you're one of the leads. Especially if you're Jean Valjean. Singing, um, bring him home. Oh my gosh! Like oh. if you, if all you know how to do is belt, no, you're not going to be able to sing "Bring Him Home." That takes classical training, and to be able to perform this show eight days a week, eight days a week, eight times a week, you know, you're going to have to have that training. Oh yeah, so that you can even sustain those muscles. Um, let's go into the societal impact. This show is used in other facets of life. Um. You know, it's it, it wasn't just kept to the stage. I mean, the, the influence was used in things like sports and business and, of course, protests. Um, you're looking at me funny and you're like, I don't understand how. Les Mis and sports? Les, I Connect know. the dots, please? Okay, well, <laughs> fun fact. Here we go. I work for the University of Utah. I, we were at, um, we were at. Oregon State, I think it was, and they played 
Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men on like a third down or something? And I was like, you're playing Les Mis. (laughs) Thank you for drawing that. I was like, what? But, But even at that time, like sports teams were using anthems or to motivate or things like that to they're drawing lines connecting the dots businesses are using that as well the whole idea of you know uh when the show came out we were coming out of a recession this is the idea of we don't have to be holding to the big dogs we can be our own you know and then you were even mentioning about protesters like come on now swear to god black lives movement last summer black lives matter the black lives matter movement I heard people singing, do you hear the people sing? I thought I just heard that in my head. I heard it at a protest. On TV, I was hearing that at a protest, and I just thought, this is nuts. This is insane. It's 2020, and people are using Les Mis as a true protest song. Now, I'd like to ask them, like, do you understand what the purpose of the song? But at the same time, I was like, no, just you use it. You go. Like, this is amazing. It's, It's, you know... 25 years later and we're still doing this this is amazing 35 years later excuse me this this show has given a voice to the little guy i really think that's that holds true yeah 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 i mean i know a lot of people uh i mean like this show just reminds people that no matter how good you have it, you need to still be charitable and you still need to give back. Um, you know, it all the show is also widely produced and imitated in other forms. Um, there's something called Drum Corps, professional competitive marching band. This show has been done two different times. Um, it also uh, in different film and TV shows and whatnot. SNL, Sesame Street, Animaniacs, Family Guys, The Simpsons, they've all, you know, really, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, mimicked or whatever. They've borrowed from it. it it's great. They've parodied uh, it. Parodied it, yep. Yeah. So, lastly, is the show relevant? This story will always be relevant because it speaks to the, quote, redemption of man even though i don't think that valjean had anything to redeem himself for it's a redemption story i completely agree uh, it's uh, a human struggle story like it's it talks everyone ab- likes to see that you know well it, it talks about the pain of being human and how humanity to be human is to struggle Absolutely. The show will always have a home on Broadway and audiences will always flock to it uh, as we've seen in the West End and the concert productions alone. You know, I, I, I feel like you've mentioned it just it's been running since 1980 something consistently in London and people still just there were three different productions of it running at one time in the same city. Yeah, I mean, it's relevant. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So, I've seen the show four times, three on Broadway, 
once at the Broadhurst, and twice at the Imperial, and then once on tour in Tucson, Arizona. I've seen the show, um, my goodness, twice, I want to say, or maybe even three times, because I feel like I've seen it at the Imperial Theater twice. Saw it twice, yeah. And then um, I've seen it at Pioneer Theater. Well, speaking of Pioneer Theater... Well, I have, um, I got the opportunity to run the show at Pioneer Theater, um, which was amazing. It wasn't the huge, long, extended run version that was done. This was the 2011 Pioneer um, run of Les Mis, which I also was a wig assistant for, um, which was really awesome. So the... This story is going to be crazy, but um, this was the sh- like my first show dressing backstage ever. Um, one time I was doing a quick change and I was trying to get this giant heavy skirt on someone. Finally got it on in time for them to run on stage. But the um, eyelet that we had used um, or the hook that we had used um, tore into my thumb and just busted it open and I got blood all over the costume and we could never find it because that's how distressed the costume wait, was. Wait, wait, wait. You couldn't find the blood? Yeah. Because it just blended in to the distressing <laughs> because the... Was it the bloody whore? No, Tell me it, it was wasn't the bloody the blo- whore. It was the actress who played the bloody whore but it wasn't her bloody <laughs> costume. Um, but like me and um, um, one of the people who worked in women's core with me they were like this is when i learned that you have to spit on it and i was like oh, yeah. they're like you... yeah we have to find it so you can spit on it and we couldn't find it so i couldn't spit on it you spit on blood if it gets on clothing because you have enzymes in your spit that will break down the blood fun fact yeah um the other thing that had happened is because act one is all mostly crazy quick changes and then act two is nice and easy but so um act one and i had we had just changed out of their prostitute costumes. Um, and I was trying to, and I had a quick change to get someone into like nice clothing for the trial scene. And I'm in like, we had to take over some of the paint shop to do our changes because there were so many people changing. And those and costumes the, were so huge. And the barricades weren't on stage, so that meant they were in the wings, so we had limited space. Um, but so I'm sitting there trying to turn a glove inside out. Oh, boy. And I'm sitting there trying to turn it inside out, and then next thing I know, the glove has flung somewhere in the paint shop. And I'm telling you, me and Aaron looked for that glove not only, like, that entire run, could never find it but we continued to look for that glove for five years and it has never been found it's like it, that the, feather from forest gum it just like flew away it, the, <laughs> the, i'm convinced the paint shop ate it I, like well, that's a thing so that glove is lost to me <laughs> um but like i just remember thinking like that was how a show ran, where you ran the marathon in the first act and then chilled during the second act. Oh, the things we would learn later. Yes. But so this was my very first show I ever run ran. Um, and it just happened to be a split track between me and someone else. So I actually was able to go out into the audience and see the show um, because I also was wig assistant. So it was beautiful to see um, some of the things I helped to create on stage. Um 
this is where I also learned one of my favorite phrases for there's, you know, a little curly bit that you sit on top of the forehead. Um, and it was taught to me by the wig master for the show, Amanda French, you know, that's like called a poodle doodle. <laughs> because it's like a, a poodle doodle or like, you know how poodles have the little doodle on the top. And it was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. Poodle the technical doodle. terms of the theater, my friend. <laughs> um, so, you know, so I just remember a lot about running it. And I, when I tell you that Les Mis was stuck in my head for six months. Oh, my gosh. It really was. It like, really was. Everything, every time I would move, that's just all I could hear was different look songs. Down, and down. Yeah. So, really, everything I, was practically sung in my life during this time. Well, uh, fun fact for all of you. My, with a story I'll start off with. That opening scene you heard in the beginning of this episode, that that was not a, 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 a written-up fake story. That actually... That's a true story. That really happened the first time both Hope and I went and saw the revival at the Imperial Theater. We were staying at a hotel in Times Square, um, and a big old storm moved in. The sky was so dark. Uh, we were walking down from 51st Street and Broadway. We were making our way to Sardi's. It was, we might as well have been walking in a puddle and we, the entire way. We, were, we made it to 48th Street and Broadway, and all of a sudden... And I mean, this didn't like... Trickle, trickle, sprinkle, sprinkle, start some rain, and then it pours. No, it clap of thunder, flash of lightning, or flash of lightning, clap of thunder, and all of a sudden, like, the East River got dumped on us. You know, it was horrible. I mean, we were just drenched. We My walked- dress was soaking wet, and I had an umbrella. Yeah, we walk <laughs> into Sardis, and the, the major D just looks at us, and I'm like, hi, hi. And he felt so bad, and... I mean, we weren't alone, but yeah, it, we got drenched. I've n- we've never been in a storm like that before. It was insane. Um, but leading me to the next one, that night um, in the cast, afterwards when we did the Kiss and Cry line, we got to meet some people that you all might, you know, be aware of. People like Will Swenson mm-hmm. and Nikki M. James. You might remember her from winning a Tony Award for her performance in the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Cassie Levy. Um, you might recognize from Hair and Frozen, Ramen Karamlu, and of course, uh, I'm going to butcher her name. Kayla. Kayla? Kayla Settle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And most people know her from um, The Greatest, Greatest Showman. Showman. But of course, I'm like, hey, yeah, I know her. Hands on a hard body. Les Mis. Waitress. You know, she actually did a Christmas Carol at uh, Pioneer Theater right before she went out and did Hands on a Hard Body. Um, so, you know, I was just like, yeah, all these are great people, you know? So, um, that was really cool. Well, and, uh, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever get to it, but later, uh, Will Swenson would come to Pioneer Theater to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I got to dress, which was so cool seeing a a Tony Award winner on the Pioneer stage. Like, ah, it was awesome. It was amazing. Um, the other one I remember is when I, we saw the tour in Tucson, uh, my mom brought me and my aunt Nancy was there and her two daughters and we were all watching. And I remember me and my two cousins, we were, we sat on the floor and we we're just hanging on like these bars that were in front of the seats, you know, and we're all <laughs> just hanging there. But the thing is, is we weren't like hanging, like we're bored. It was almost like we're hanging from the rafters in Shakespearean times, you know? Mm-hmm. But we were so enthralled with the show. But, of course, my aunt and my mom were just like, oh, just blubbering away, especially after Gavroche dies. But 
my both my mom and my aunt thought we were just going to be bored out of our mind because you know it's kind of like classical music and it's all everything and it's so long we were hooked we were hooked because it was just so the music was so powerful we didn't entirely not all the songs were our favorite i mean i didn't like bring him home and that i was kind of checking out but it was it was a great show my last story is probably one of my favorites um and it's bittersweet um so i saw the first um revival of les mis um in 2007 and if you all remember um back in the producers episode i got to meet gary beach and he talked with me and when we were talking he was asking me like what i was up to and everything I mentioned high school and that. And he's like, well, are you coming back to the city anytime soon? And I was like, well, I tried out for choir. And the only reason why I tried out for choir and, and, and got in was because they're coming to New York next year. He's like, oh, great. Well, I'm going to be doing Les Mis, so you should definitely come back and see the show. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, duh. So we went and saw Les Mis. Saw him playing Tenardier. He was amazing. And I remember him coming out after the show. He saw me, immediately recognized me, came over. It was kind of cool because I could kind of flex in front of my friends. Like, ah, see, a Broadway actor knows me. A Tony Award-winning Broadway actor knows me. He was so nice. And we got pictures and just caught up. And the reason why this is bittersweet, um, this would be the last time I would get to see and talk with Gary Beach because, unfortunately, he did pass away. Um back in 2019 yeah um and this was his last show on broadway so you know sad moment there but i was so happy that i got to see him again um he's such a great man i can't say enough about him i could have a whole episode about him um but he was he was great um so As things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see the show again. I'm sure you'll be able to catch Les Mis at a theater near you this fall, next spring, all the time, everywhere. (laughs) We just want to mention as well that as things are opening up, we encourage all of you to support the arts, whether it be local, regional, or of course, Broadway. Now more than ever, it is time for us to raise up and foster the performing arts wherever they may exist. Please join us in doing your part to help the arts return by supporting a live performance near you. We ourselves have already begun this work and have a special announcement regarding this. Starting October 12th of this year, we will be returning ourselves to the Great White Way. Oh, it's getting closer. And we will be bringing you live updates from the reopening of Broadway. We will be releasing short little mini episodes recapping the shows we see and as we see them every single evening starting on this date. Whether we've talked about the show or not, we will be giving a brief glimpse into each show's reopening and hopefully stir up some excitement among our fellow theater lovers. Maybe even enough to get them to buy a ticket and continue to support this community we all love so much. So keep your eyes on all of our social media platforms, all of our socials, as well as where you subscribe for these mini episodes coming soon this fall. Also, we would really love to hear from you, all of you out there. Send us your personal stories about your experiences in the theater. 
whether it was on stage, backstage, upstage, or at the stage door, whatever, we want to hear about it. You can send us your stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com or send us a direct message on any of our social media. And um, in a couple of weeks, we'll start incorporating your own stories into our episodes. Finally, we want to thank all of you out there who are listening. We truly appreciate it. We just want to close this episode uh, by giving a shout out to a couple of listeners out there. So to those of you in Belgium and Columbus, Ohio, hey, we see you. Hello. Thank you so much. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your phones. And unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Music for Wildlife by Fox. Other music on this episode provided by Lovira, AJ Super, and Billy Murray.